Thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, uh, when I first got the email to do this. I was like, I think you emailed the wrong person, because I don't have a PhD, and and uh, <clears throat> you know, and you guys don't either. So I guess we're we're even, huh? Uh, <laughs> uh, so I um, <clears throat> what happened is um, was it Heath? Is that who it was Thomas Heath or Heath Thomas? Uh, he heard me talk uh, at uh, Urbana uh, 2012 on the subject of, uh, it was called Vamonos, Mobilizing Blacks uh, and Hispanics for Global Mission, or something to that effect. And um, and I didn't think people paid attention to stuff I talked about, and so when he contacted me after like three years, I was really shocked. Um, so just, uh, so in terms of credentials, uh, just, uh, I, I do belong to a Southern Baptist church. It's called uh, Green Forest Community Baptist Church. Uh, not that that matters. I'm just letting you know we have a little bit of connection there. Uh, I became a believer there around the age of 12. And uh, I've been there. I, my family rejoined about a year and a half ago. Um, my mom and dad are, are there, and they serve as the missions directors there. Um, <clears throat> my mom is also a trustee on the IMB. Um, for a while, she was the only African-American trustee on the IMB when another guy took ill, and I think they just brought another one on there, so it's like like two out of 90 or something like that. Uh, progress, progress. And uh, she works with the Southeast Asia Affinity Group, and I think she did uh, Americas for a little while. Um, I did graduate from Oral Roberts University. Uh, despite what you may think, the, the popular culture and what happens in the school are two different things. So, uh, so I actually did take systematic theology. I took four semesters of Greek and three or four of Hebrew all those other fun classes that you guys had to take. And so, um, so there you go. All right. Am I, am I legit? Uh, but, but we, but we do believe in praying for people and that, that God can heal still. So see me afterward and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, for a small fee. And, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking. Um, I've been involved in international missions for about 18 years. And, um, because, uh, of my, uh, unicorn like status, I like to say, I think I'm the only non-white director of mobilization at any sending agency in the country. And uh, and because of that, I get asked to do a whole lot of things that are related to, you know, hey, we have questions about, you know, diversity or whatever. Would you come and, and talk with us? And uh, and so anyway, so but because of that status, I've got invited to be a part of things like uh, the EMQ, so the Evangelical Mission Quarterly. If you don't read it, let me put a pitch, uh, you know, for that. Uh, it's a it's not a scholarly journal, but it's a more for the mission practitioner. So for you guys over there. Um, and um, and then also I work with the Lausanne movement. Uh, Lausanne has become uh, pretty much the thing that uh, is this being recorded. Uh, Lausanne is like like the center of my heart right now. Um, God has given me the opportunity to be on the the young the planning team for the next younger leaders gathering, which will be in Jakarta, Indonesia, August of this year. So we're gathering together 1,000 of the most evangelical, the most uh, influential evangelical younger leaders from around the world. And I'm asked, I was asked to be the selection chair for the whole thing. And so I'm a unicorn. Hi. And uh, so it opens up doors <clears throat> and I'm, and I'm, uh, and, and also teach perspectives. Um, so that's uh, one of my favorite things to do as well. Uh, I was a former missions director at a church. Uh, it was a 99.9% uh, African-American church. We had on paper 25,000 members. Um, but we probably had like 15, so it was, a, it was a lot smaller than you, you know, than 25,000. Uh, unfortunately, it was more of like a prosperity church. So my pastor had a Maybach, which is like $250,000, uh, a car. He had a Rolls Royce Phantom, Gulfstream 2 Jet, Hummer, all these other fun toys. And, uh, and here I am, the missions director of this large church, sending out no more than 20 people on short-term missions trips per year. 
Um, it was around that time that I began to realize that there's a lack of African Americans in missions. Um, learning through my friend Jim Sutherland, who's a white American who did his PhD at TEDS or Trinity uh, on uh, on African Americans in missions. Uh, so that was that's originally what I was going to talk about. So if you want to talk about that later, I'd be glad to talk with you about that. But African Americans make up less than 0.6% of the, the missionary sending force that serves overseas. And that's despite George Lyle being the first uh, missionary that we know of on record uh, leaving America and, and going overseas, uh, who's an African American. He indentured himself to a British soldier and went to Jamaica and had a very effective ministry over there. So my passion is, is um, mobilize, mobilization in general. But I do feel a sense of calling to my own people as well. The last thing I'll say, <clears throat> as by way of introduction, but I hope, hope it's relevant, is that um, I've spent 16 of the last 19 years in a majority white context. So, um, so I feel like when I talk about subjects like this to either black audiences or white audiences or Latino or whatever, I feel like um, I form some genuine friendships that allow me to speak with, um, not not make these broad brushstrokes. You know what I mean? Because um, I was telling uh, Dr. Pearls over there, I said, um, you know, when I grew up, people would say, white people don't have any problems. Like, they have all the money they need, and they just don't have any problems. I was like, no, no, white people have problems. <laughs> you know, 16 years, it took me that long to discover that, but it's, <laughs> but it's true. Um, so anyway, so in light of this, um, you know, who I am and what I've been involved in, I've been asked by a lot of people, um, pastors and different organizations, how do we invite diversity into our organizations? Uh, you know, and it's more like at a friendship level. It's not because I'm some kind of scholar who has tons of books. But they say, Richard, um, why is it that uh, we can't get African Americans to come to our church or Latinos to come to our church? And uh, and so, the um, I think what's happening is people are aware that uh, they know that in the year 2050 or 2043, all the stats say that America will become majority minority. So it's almost like people know that there's this big shift happening. A lot of minority groups are becoming more courageous and speaking up about the issues that they feel have frustrated them for many years. Um, African Americans have typically be, been at the front of that, uh, you know, and our issues are a little more obvious because of civil rights and that kind of stuff. But uh, but there are folks like Chinese Americans or uh, Japanese Americans who were in the internment camps. And, uh, and maybe for issues that are cultural, they haven't quite spoken up yet. And, uh, but there will be a time when you will hear a lot more minority voices speaking up and saying, we want a space at the table. We want to be heard. This isn't right. And, um, and I think a lot of majority organizations are saying, we want to po be poised to interact with these groups. Um, we want to be friends. We don't want to perpetuate some of the wrongs of the past. And in my opinion, a lot of that desire for diversity is genuine. In my opinion, I don't know for a fact. Um, maybe some of it's uh, from pressure, you know, of like uh, donors say, we want to see more, you know, people of color or we're not going to give you any more money. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I think it tends to be genuine. Um, but the question goes somewhat like this. I was in Covington and a pastor of a Presbyterian church, a white pastor, said to me, um, you know, Covington is changing a lot. Covington, where I live, is where the Dukes of Hazard was filmed. Confederate flag, Smokey and the Bandit, uh, in the heat of the night, you know, all filmed in Covington. Now, uh, Selma was filmed there. Uh, Flight, uh, which is Denzel Washington movie. You guys haven't seen it because you can't watch rated R movies. But um, but it's a but it's a Denzel Washington movie. 
<laughs> and uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm just, um, and uh, and so it's it's moved from being very Republican to very Democrat, from from being mostly white to now being mostly black and uh, black in terms of African American and Caribbean. Uh, and so this pastor is saying, why is my church not reflecting the community? Um, and what do I need to do to change that? So what he did is he decided to offer free counseling. He offered, uh, hey, look, a sign on the street, free counseling. <clears throat> and so mostly African-Americans were taking him up on that offer, doing the free counseling, very appreciative of the help that they were getting, but they were not joining the church. And he said, why is that? Like, I, you know, they're, they're friendly we have a great relationship. They ask for information about the services, but they never come to the service. What's going on there? And uh, so these are the kinds of questions that I've been getting. And um, and so um, so in in light of that, <coughs> in light of that, I wanted to just talk about two separate structures. Now, now this is there are going to be lots of nuances to this and a lot of relativity to some of this. So so don't so try not to pigeonhole me too much. I mean, I'm trying to give some broad things. Um, but we're going to look at two structures, just a lo like a local church as it relates to diversity and what are some models that actually might be appropriate models as we approach multicultural churches or, or diversity. And then looking at parachurch organizations, um, mission organizations and, and you know other groups. And um, <clears throat> so the first thing, um, th what I told this pastor when we met is I said, um, for some reason I think a lot of pastors have heard this idea that it, they are bad if their churches don't reflect kingdom diversity. And so they feel this level of guilt that my church is all white or my church is all black or my church is all Korean. And out of that position of guilt, they try to rectify the reality. We need to get more diversity in the church. Um, and uh, But I, I told this pastor, I said, multicultural churches, in my opinion, um, are the exception and not the norm. And I'm okay with that. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. <coughs> um, because people tend to, let me define the term multicultural first. So multicultural, in, in the way I'm using it, will refer to uh, the presence of different kinds of people in the same organization. It doesn't mean they necessarily interact very well. Um, that would be more like intercultural, where people, uh, they share ideas, they, they have mutual respect for one another's worship styles and ideas, and they're actually like, they're working really well together where, where no culture is dominating the conversation or, or the styles. Does that make sense? Um, <coughs> uh, typically what happens is um, uh, people tend to assimilate to, uh, you know, in, in, in a multicultural church, you typically have people who live on the margins of their respective cultures, and they're already people who are open to diversity. Um, like me, for example. I mean, I... I grew up in a majority black setting, uh, but I've always been open to do things like skydiving and swing dancing. And my friends growing up, they're like, that's what white people like to do. You know, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> international missions, you know, that's what white people do. So I've always had an openness to things that were different from me. Um, and so I've, so I've always been curious about the other. And it seems like multicultural churches um, attract people who are open to the other, but it doesn't, in my opinion, um, and what I've seen, it doesn't necessarily attract the people who are thoroughly steeped in their own cultures, and and they still are operating from more of an indigenous mindset, if you will, if that makes any sense. Um, so I was a, I was a part of a church in Tulsa 
that would be considered diverse, um, but it was pretty much simply multicultural and, and not intracultural. So, so the worship style would reflect a majority white, charismatic church, Hillsong, you know, that kind of stuff. There's guitars and everything, you know, and uh, and so it, it was it it was like in order to participate in that church as a minority, or um, you had to assimilate to the majority culture, um, and you didn't really have much hope that the majority culture would express an interest in who you are or what your particular expressions were. And, uh, and so that was the multicultural model that I was first um, aware of. Now, um, I know that um, um, there are a handful of churches that do it well, but I think they're extremely rare. Uh, why is that? Well, you guys over here are serving in like overseas context, right? Um, and so you know that, that anthropology, sociology, those things are huge. I mean, they are like at the heart of who we are. And, uh, and so on several occasions, I've taken um, all white groups to participate in traditional black church um, worship experiences. And, and, they'll, and they'll say, we loved it. Oh, my goodness. There was so much energy and we danced and we sang and the preacher was so energetic. And this was a great experience. And, and that's because it's somewhat exotic. It's new. But I guarantee you, if I brought that same group back, Service after service after service, they say, why do they have to repeat that same line in the song 40 times, you know? Why is that pastor, like, hooping like he's having an asthma attack? I mean, like, what's, what's going on, you know? And so then it becomes less novel, and it becomes irritating. And, uh, and so what was once interesting, and you actually felt like, I think I could do this, then it becomes, a, 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 you know, the rub happens, and you say, you know what? I think I'd rather migrate back to what is familiar and um, and what I you know what actually feeds me um, week in and week out, and uh, and that's because when when we when we when we find ourselves longing to connect with Jesus in these deepest ways, we tend to do it in ways that are are are, are according to our our culture. You know what I mean? Um, and so like uh, there's a church in, in Conyers, and uh, they have a sign that says uh, doing church differently or something like that. You know like. It's just like this whole like edgy kind of thing, and it's like a guitar on there. And so I was like, wow, this is going to be really cool. And <laughs> I went to the service, and uh, I mean, like everybody's wearing like all kinds of stuff. There were girls wearing Daisy Dukes, and 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 in the and the worship band had like five guitars. And I was just like, five guitars. Like when I was in church, nobody played the guitar. Like like what does a guitar have to do with edginess? Anyway, it was just. So for me, culturally, that w- that just felt kind of awkward. And, and, and while it was cool for a little bit, it felt like I had to like move back to what was comfortable and familiar. Um, even when I'm like really, really stressed or the, the other day I was like in my, my closet. Um, and because uh, that's where Jesus tells us to play, pray, right? In the New Testament, doesn't he? And uh, so I was, <laughs> I was in my closet and, uh, and I was just feeling really, really stressed and overwhelmed and burdened. And I didn't turn to... Um, you know, let's say majority white, and I know these things are relative, um, style of music because I needed to hear William Beckton's Be Encouraged because that spoke deep inside of, you know, to me. And uh, and so we forget that people are that way. They, they are, um, it's like before they're Christian, they are Egyptian or they are, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And we forget that. <coughs> um, number two, um, uh, sometimes the ways that we approach church are a little different. Like uh, I remember I have an African-American friend who went to a church I used to go to called Grace Fellowship. And at Grace, you know, you walk in, you get your coffee, and you go and sit in the sanctuary. 
and people make small talk during praise and worship. And my friend was like, this is horrible. Like they're drinking in the sanctuary. Like this is supposed to be like a reverent, like a reverent place of worship. And people are like talking during praise and worship and they're drinking coffee with flip flops. And uh, and that <laughs> created such an awkward thing for her that it was difficult for her to like enter in the experience. I mean, when I grew up in church, you didn't walk when, when it was prayer time. You didn't. You stood still. If you had to pee, you had to hold it. The ushers would would lock the doors, or, or at least stand in front of the doors. Um, and uh, and so what I want to just reiterate is that over time, people will gravitate toward their preferences. Um, there are always exceptions, but people tend to do that. And um, and that's why I say anthropology and sociology are super strong. And that's why I think that um, that it's completely okay. Um, I not the Lord. I think it's completely okay to have all African-American churches, all white churches, all Korean churches, all whatever churches. I think that is completely okay, and I think that God actually has no problem with it. Um, because it doesn't say anything about our oneness as espoused in Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. You know, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, yada, yada, yada. Um, what I think matters, though, is that... Um, homogenous churches must interact with one another. So that's where I think, so, so there are four models, I think, in terms of churches, in terms of how we can express that intercultural desire as opposed to just multicultural. One is, I think, it is okay to be an all-white church and to not feel guilty, to not feel like God's going to strike you dead or that he's going to say, not well done, good and faithful servant. Um, but I think what we have to do is form genuine friendships with other pastors, with other leaders, and invite our congregations to do at least these three things together. Outreach, so doing missions trips together, sharing needs within the community. Maybe maybe the issues that affect the black community, maybe the answers lie within um, Latino scholarship and theology. Maybe I should, you know, maybe some of the issues affecting one area can be solved by another part of the body and we have to work together but pastors and leaders have to be intentional about creating these types of environments where this can take place so if you are a majority white church and you know that african-american churches might not be engaged in missions let the pastor know that you're having a missions trip to xyz place and you would be thrilled to invite some of their members on the trip and uh, or if you're doing some local things in the community work together in terms of outreach too i think it's good to have periodic worship where you get to experience one another's styles uh, there's a guy, uh, pa uh, Pastor Dix in Florida, and uh, Denny Heiberg. <coughs> Denny Heiberg pastored a white United Methodist church. Pastor Dix pastored a majority black, almost like a Pentecostal church. And the two of them would share pulpits every now and then. And the people at the majority white church, they just loved the fact that Pastor Dix was animated and didn't do a lecture style service. And the choir moved back and forth and, like, you know, brought some energy to things. And um, the black church was like, Excuse me, man. I'm so glad this guy would like slow down and teach us and not yell at us all the time. And uh, you know, so so what it did is it allowed people to ex to experience another worship style while still being in a safe space. It was it was a gradual level of exposure. It wasn't it wasn't traumatic. It allowed them to you know take baby steps. And um, and then the pastors actually formed a friendship and they actually spent time together. So that was important as well. <coughs> the third thing is that. Um, there needs to be genuine fellowship where um, where people are able to spend time together. 
like around maybe some kind of conversation topic, not too intense, like, you know, who do you want to run, win president, you know, win, win the presidency? That's, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you know, you'd have a fight. Um, you know, but, but spending time together, um, not like in a show and tell kind of way, but in a let's, let's, you know, operating from the position of us being brothers and sisters, one in Christ, let's just discover how, how we've been uniquely gifted, what our experiences have been like in, in America or in life, and let's genuinely learn from each other. Uh, I think um, one of the reasons why I've been, um, I don't want to say effective, as if to pat myself on the bat, but back, but I think I've been effective because I formed so many friendships across so many, I mean, people who are in wheelchairs and people who um, are, I mean, just different colors, people who speak different languages. <laughs> someone said to me, um, I was on a, a Skype call with someone, and she said to me, you know, someone said, do you think Richard is okay because he's American? And uh, she's like, no, no, Richard, he's okay. He's okay. Well, why? Because when I walk into a room and I'm with my Brazilian friend, I say, um, I say, uh, bon dia to the bane. And, uh, you know, and I say, uh, you know, I don't do this to her. And, you know, I, I talk really close to her face and I make sure I put my hand on her back every now and then. Um, then I talk to my Egyptian friend, Sabah al I said, I said, uh, Hany, is it okay if I call you Habibi? It, who's, who's in the, yeah, yeah. Is it okay if I call you Habibi, which means beloved? I was like, because, I mean, it just sounds a little bit different for me, you know? I don't exactly call my guy friends beloved, but is that, is that like okay in Egyptian culture? Oh, yes, it is. He's like, you can call me Habibi, you know? And I was just like, wow, that's special. Um, or my Egyptian friend, um, uh, oh man, what's his name? I can see it. Imad. Imad. He, um, he, um, I was going to go eat some uh, barbecue at this place called Arthur Bryant's, which is one of the best places in Kansas City. And there's Gates and there's Oklahoma Joe's and these other places. Anyway, so I said, do you want to go with me to eat uh, barbecue? And he said, uh, no, that's okay. I don't want to go. And I was like, well, it'll be great. You know, we should, we should go. It, it will be fun. No, that's okay. I don't want to go. I said, well, I mean, I'm, you know, have you ever been there before? Well, you should come. Okay, I'll go. And I said, Imad, let me ask you this. Did you only say yes to me because I asked you three times? He's like, yeah. Because I had learned somewhere that in some cultures, you have to ask three times in order for your invitation to be viewed as legitimate and you actually wanting to hang out with that person. And all those little nuances of cultures I've learned over time, holding hands with friends from Uganda, showing up two hours late for a party uh, that's thrown by Kenyans. Um, all those things don't come out of like reading a book or that they come from friendships. So when I think of Kenya, I think of Waithaka and Shiko Ngure, whose wedding I performed and whose daughter, Tumaini, is my daughter's best friend. And we spend time together. And, uh, and so our churches have to spend time together because spending time with people and forming friendships is what breaks through those stereotypes. There are a lot of stereotypes. I mean, I could, you know, white people don't have problems. That's what I learned when I was growing up. Um, I learned that uh, all white people hate black people, just those kinds of things. So let, let me, you know what, let me, let me just give you an example of what I grew up with, okay? Um, and I'll keep it clean because <laughs> there's nothing bad. Uh, but like, so when I grew up, we would watch Wheel of Fortune. And... Uh, and no matter who the black person was, whether they were saved or unsaved, you always cheer for the black person on Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, because there's a sense of solidarity. Um, when you're listening to the news and they say, John Doe shot 17 people and killed them, you know, you don't see the TV right away, you're like, I hope it's not a black person. And you see a white person, you're like, yes! You know, 
not going to carry this stereotype any further. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> um, you know, um, you know, white people always want to tell you what uh, what to do and what they think, and they're not yada yada yada. So those are those are the things that I kind of encountered. And uh, but then when I think of relationships that I formed, I say, you know, those things aren't necessarily true. Um, those things, because there are a lot of kinds of white people, right? I mean, there's lots. So um, uh, yeah, <laughs> all right. But my, my point is, we've all grown up with these narratives, these uh, these things that are in our brains. And, uh, and it's important that we, in safe environments, are able to talk about those and see the things that we have in common and uh, in ways that we can truly be one body. So again, this is in the context of your church remaining all white or all black or whatever. Uh, the second model, I would say, is, um, is, like, is, is like a multicultural church, like I mentioned before. There's a church called Victory World Church in, uh, in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta. And uh, in this church, the pastor is white. And he told his congregation, I was mostly white, about 10 plus years ago. He said, we want to make this church more diverse. Are you guys with me? Everybody's like, yeah, we're with you. And so when diversity started coming, everybody, all the white people left. And, uh, and now the church is like still pastored by the same pastor, but it's mostly Latino, African-American, Afro-Caribbean, and, and that kind of mix. But, um, but what they're trying to do is to kind of form their own culture. Where, um, where the music, the ways of approaching things, it kind of comes out of this. Um, it's not that it's not that people are denying their cultures, but they've kind of created their own church culture. And so the music isn't necessarily white or black. It has like undertones and flavors of everything kind of mixed in there. Um, but I would say that that's another model that I've seen. I do think that that again is the exception and not the norm, because uh, because those tend to happen in like larger cities or places where you've already been exposed to a lot of diversity. But uh, in rural Alabama, I mean, I just don't really see that happen, happening. I could be wrong, you know? Uh, <laughs> the third thing um, is uh, we can uh, work, we can actually have, and this is the model that you talked about, where you have one church, and that church has several smaller churches that meet within. Uh, and so I don't know who, who is like the boss of that process, but having having all these smaller churches meet within one local church, and the same thing, you make times for get-togethers, you have times for for worship, where you guys get together and share worship styles, preaching styles. Um, that would be a third model. And then um, I thought I had a fourth on here somewhere, but I am not seeing it. And um, so anyway, those I mean those are just some things that I think I've seen work, and um, and I think that uh, yeah, have you guys seen those? I guess I'll ask you later for Q and A. I'm supposed to keep talking. Um, so that's uh, so the third thing. I mean, the second thing I'm going to talk about is so that's how it relates to churches. And again, I've I've been to all kinds of churches. I've seen this in very you know very awkward ways, and I've seen it in very healthy ways. Uh, but now we enter into the issue of uh, of, um, of parachurch organizations. Uh, I remember being at the Mission America Coalition Conference, which Mission America is the, is the U.S. expression of the Lausanne movement. And I was asked to speak, and so I talked about um, uh, some, of the, some of the frustrations being an African-American trying to partner with a majority white organization. And, um, and later on, I got questions like, well, well, we're really curious, why don't African-Americans come to the Mission America Coalition meeting? or Missio Nexus. Why don't African Americans come to Missio Nexus? To which I said, well, how many of you are at the Hampton Ministers Conference? Nobody raised their hands. Hampton Ministers Conference is the largest gathering of black clergy in the world. 
So why is the expectation that we go to your events, but you don't come to our events? It's like an, it's like an unfair standard. And, um, and so that's where I kind of saw this issue. And, uh, and so there's some barriers that are very real. Uh, one of the barriers that, uh, especially as it relates to sending agencies, which is where most of my experience has been, is one of them is just a financial barrier. Uh, my family would have to raise about $90,000 a year to go through our sending agency or many other sending agencies just to serve one year overseas. So that means we'd have to have about half a million dollars pledged before we actually are able to hop on a plane and move overseas. Uh, Scott Bessenecker wrote a really good book called Overturning Tables. Uh, Bessenecker, B-E-S-S-E-N-E-C-K-E-R. It's called Overturning Tables. Um, and I want to see us like destroying the mission industrial complex, if I'm not mistaken. But he addresses some of the the systemic issues that uh, that that uh, that show how organizations were formed and how some of those things don't really serve ethnic minorities very well. Um, now, I'm not saying that all people don't struggle with raising support, but when it comes to like African American realities, I can talk to like a millionaire and say, "Would you give me fifty dollars a month for five years?" And it just it's just not a part of it. Just doesn't make sense. I'll get a one-time offering, but I won't get that, that support that continues. So the financial thing continues to be an issue, the support raising. Um, the other thing is just the, um, the historical heroes that are shared. Uh, one of the hardest things for me working at the Mission Society, and these are people that I love. I mean, I've spent the night at their homes. They would jump in front of a bullet for me, and I would jump in front of a bullet for them. So we're not saying that we don't like each other. But one of the most frustrating things is... Um, this silent, protracted message that my heroes don't matter. I mean, I grew up knowing that Garrett Morgan invented the stoplight and the gas mask. Madam C.J. Walker was the first female millionaire. Benjamin Banneker wrote the blueprint for D.C. DuSable was the first you know, permanent resident of Chicago, Chicago, and on and on and on. I, I was like, wow, we've accomplished some great things in this country. Like, wow, and these aren't just like black things. These are like, I mean, how many of you use a stoplight? Right? Um, a gas mask. You know, ask the soldiers that. So why is it that these heroes do not exist in a majority context? Never. I have never, except for Martin Luther King, and maybe people will talk about Rosa Parks or George Washington Carver. But that's it. None of my heroes exist. So what that says to me, it's not that people are racist in, in, in those vulgar term, in, in the vulgar sense, but it is a, it is a complete lack of awareness that other people have heroes and ways of living life that are just as valid and legitimate. So I have like like shut down in devotions when there's like Ferguson going on or Eric Garner or Tamir Rice and the whole country is talking about it. I mean everybody, CNN, even BBC is like having like, you know, articles on it. And then when it's prayer time in the morning, well we want to pray for what's going on with Boko Haram and, and ISIS and uh, Al-Shabaab has many killed some folks in Kenya. And you're just like, Come on, yeah, yeah. Are you gonna? And and there's no mention of it. So in my experience, in majority um, parachurch organizations, and in talking with friends from other parachurch organizations, because we, we kind of compare notes, they say the same frustration is there. That in the majority white context, um, the issues overseas are super important. But the ones, especially as it relates to minorities, ethnic minorities in America, they don't even get mentioned. And so you begin to seethe with like anger, um, and sometimes I think it causes a little bit of, you know, an outburst, which I haven't I haven't done many outbursts. 
but I did um, I did get a bit vocal um, one time in the office. I said, you know, I said this is really frustrating. I mean, this is these are people that are important and they don't exist, and no one no one cares. No one no one says what was it like growing up in Decatur, Georgia. I mean, I grew up in a I grew up in the in one of the most uh, in in I think the top four wealthiest black community in the nation. It was solidly middle class, you know, and I didn't grow up in the projects or the ghetto or anything like that. But when I talk to people, nobody wants to know where I came from. And so you feel like in order to belong, you have to die to who you used to be in order to fully assimilate to this organization. And um, so that's a barrier. I took a long time on that. Um, the lack of leaning in. So when a person, another barrier, when a person actually attempts to communicate that there's some kind of issue and, uh, and the person responds with, well, I've experienced uh, racism too when I was in Honduras and a, and a Honduran kid called me gringo. And um, true story. And, uh, and so that lack of leaning in creates this, this feeling that, uh, that we can't have conversations that are related to this particular subject. We have to gloss it over and pretend like it doesn't exist. In order for me to function well here, I just can't bring it up again. Uh, and then the last barrier I'll say is, um, just a quick one is, and there, and there are more, is, uh, is worship style. So I went to a Comina. Comina? You heard of Comina before? Comibam was like the, um, um, out of Lausanne came these big networks. And so Comibam was the Latino expression of, you know, reaching least reached and uh, approaching missions from a collaborative effort. Uh, and then Comina is the, is the U.S. or North American expression of Comibam. So Comibam put on an, uh, a conference on um, on helping white organizations know how to interact with Latinos, and so I went, you know, just to learn. And and this is what they said. This is not what I said. They said one of the most frustrating things that Latinos have experienced is the lack of passion in white organizations. Now I'm not saying it's true across the board, but let me give an example. When it's prayer time, Father God, just want to thank you this wonderful day and you're wonderful God and we just you know like I mean that kind of like like Father we just love you we thank you you know like and all Latinos are not the same and all white people are not the same so I'm not, I mean because if you went to ORU it was definitely passionate I mean you know we knew how to connect with God um, but, but my point is my point is um, when you're an ethnic minority and you join a majority organization you feel very self-conscious about your worship styles or your preferences we had a lady that like she got real happy I don't know if you heard that term happy like filled with the Holy Ghost is what some people say as well I know it's not good theology necessarily but anyway she got really happy and she like ran a lap around the the, the perimeter of the building inside you know and I was just like oh you're embarrassing us black people um, <laughs> But I realized that it was like an authentic expression of, of who she was, and I had kind of assimilated, and now I was like embarrassed. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm not running. I want to, but I won't do it. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> these are some uh, barriers. And then, uh, just in, in the final uh, closing part, so how to do it well, I think InterVarsity does it very well. Now, people who've been a part of InterVarsity might disagree with me, but the Urbana Missions Conference is like one of my favorite things in the whole wide world. I mean, I'm an Urbana junkie. We just had uh, Urbana uh, in uh, the last week of uh, December. It's every three years. So it was December 27 through January 1st. And, um, and what they do with, with InterVarsity is they, they are one ministry, but within that one ministry, they allow for 
uh, cultures to assimilate or, 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 or gather together, if you will. There's a book called Why Do All the Black Kids Eat Together in the Cafeteria? You know, like, uh, well, because they relate to each other. They get each other's jokes. They feel comfortable around each other. They don't have to uh, code switch. They don't have to be something different. They can just relax and be themselves. And so people tend to gravitate toward who they feel comfortable with. And so InterVarsity, recognizing that, they have BCM, which is Black Campus Ministry. They have uh, La Fe, which is Latinos. They have one for uh, Native Americans and indigenous peoples. They have uh, one for Asian Americans. They have stuff for Greeks. They have, uh, you know, um, what do you call it, master's level students, graduate student fellowship. So my point is, InterVarsity recognizes that people tend to hang out with people who are like them, and they let it happen. They don't call it a barrier to oneness. They allow people to express who they are, but then they have these events like Urbana, where everyone comes together in the same room. And I encourage you to go to urbana.org, and you can watch one of the worship sets. You'll see the worship leader will be um, Erna Hackett. You know, she um, is Korean American, but she spent time in Ferguson learning about the Black Lives Matter movement, not the organization. This is where InterVarsity got in trouble. They actually lost some donors over this. Um, I thought it was done well, but people who didn't know that nuance thought that InterVarsity was supporting Black Lives Matter, the movement, I mean, the organization that, you know, says we need to you know, fry those pigs, referring to police officers, that kind of stuff. They were they were trying to interact with the movement of supporting black lives in general. And then they had another guy who went to um, Mexico and hung out with people there and another person. And they would come back and they would demonstrate what worship looked like in that particular context. And it wasn't show and tell. They did it so that you could be invited into a genuine worship experience with brothers and sisters who were different from you. And I think that that model is phenomenal. You can see it for yourself um, at uh, urbana.org. The last model for parachurch, and um, and I'm sure we could cover tons and tons more, and uh, we'll probably discover more in our Q and A session because you guys are PhD students, so you've like you know the stuff already. Um, but the the second model is just again that whole model of just being okay that it's a separate organization. Uh, Lot Carry Foreign Missions is predominantly black, you know. They have uh, they send out tons of uh, black Baptists primarily on short-term mission trips. But Lot Carry is mostly black. You have MPI, which is Musulmanes Pueblos Internacionales, not Pueblos. Anyway, it, yeah, it's MPI. It used to be MPI, and uh, and they're mostly Latinos, and they're working to send people to the least reached people groups overseas because Latinos have had a very uh, they've been welcome into the Middle East and, and places like that. Um, so it's okay to be separate, but again, we have to we have to force ourselves to work together because otherwise we won't. Um, that's really all I'm going to say about this. You, you, you're going to hear a lot about this. Let, let me try to let me try to put myself in your shoes if that's possible. Um, I am very to the, very sensitive to the fact because I because I try to listen and lean in no matter who the person is. I have a friend who said, Richard, it's really frustrating with all this talk about minorities and diversity and everything. Like, what about white people? Like, don't we exist anymore? Don't, you know, don't we have a culture? Don't we have you know? First of all, the whole black white thing is a stupid idea. It was a race doesn't exist except for the human race. So when you take the census, you know, white could be like a, a Moroccan white guy who moves to America and he's white, just like a person from the south is white, like a guy who from Poland is white. How does that help us at all? 
You know what I mean? It, it's it's a it's a it's a category that was created that's just, just not helpful. But in in creating those categories, you put all white people into this one category. So um so when someone says they want to go eat ethnic food, it's not. I mean like, sorry, you're not included. You don't have an ethnicity. <laughs> you know. And then what is white food anyway? I don't know what that is. Uh, so, so I do. I am very sensitive. That I have another friend who is a. He's, he has a PhD, um, and he wanted to leave his school to move to another school. He said, "Richard, I can't go to any other school because nobody wants white male professors. They're only looking for females and minorities." And so I hear that pain. I also hear the um, just the frustration of, you know, reverse discrimination and you know all that kind of stuff. So I hear it. Um, and, and I respect it, um, but I do realize, so, so I'm sensitive to that, if that makes any sense. Uh, so, but this issue is going to come up more and more and more and more, and I applaud your school for having the Kingdom Diversity Initiative, because it's, you guys are ahead of the, ahead of the game. And uh, so that's all I'll say, and I'm looking forward to questions because I love questions. They, uh, they make the world go around. So can I get my water? And feel free to ask me about the other topic of African Americans and missions if you think that would be helpful to your context or work that you're doing as well. Thank you so much for your uh, wonderful talk, and uh, certainly enjoyed, you know, uh, hearing your background and some mm-hmm. of your experiences. You started off with your talk with a uh, kind of a, an example on uh, the counseling in the community. I was hoping you would maybe come back around to say why that didn't work. Yeah, and I've got a follow-up question, so maybe you could. Okay, yeah, and and, and I kind of alluded to it, just saying that uh, uh, the the church culture just didn't feel normative, it didn't feel normal, and so people would say, yeah, in this space we can get along pretty well, but um, this is again, this is I, not the Lord. I think when it comes to worship, this is a very unique thing. It's not like we're working at a business together or that we're doing a homework project together. This is like the most intimate connection that you can have with with God. And 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 if and if something doesn't feel right, the worship music is different, the dress is different, the the sense of holiness is different. It feels like that that friction is so strong that you can't fully enter into a worship experience. And I think that people just they don't they just don't want to attempt that unless they see some adjustments being made. Yeah, did the uh, did the pastor make any adjustments, or did they abandon the ministry? <clears throat> no, the, I, I think um, to the best of my knowledge, the pastor kept doing the counseling, but but I checked up with him later, and the church was still mostly yeah. white. Yeah, you know, well, because what? people they have to choose between a, a majority black church, uh-huh. um, and then the um, you know like a white church. They'll probably just depends on who they are, but they'll often choose the, the church that matches their culture. So in my community, I live in Sanford, which is um, about 60 miles south of here, and I'm a minority in my community. Mm-hmm. And God allowed us um, in 2007 to start a parachurch ministry mm-hmm. uh, in our context. And one of the goals was that the ministry would would be used maybe as a, a church planning paradigm you know, mm-hmm. in our community. What advice would you give a church planner who wants to do not necessarily the multicultural or the multicultural um, mm-hmm. uh, technique, but but the intercultural? How how, can, how what advice would you give to do that well in a way where there's not this alien or foreignness? Um, what advice maybe would you give? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it is, is, is again, those forming friendships and spending time with people and really listening. Um, I Sometimes I wish I was making this stuff up because I'm like, I'm like okay, because I've been accused of having lenses that are just for my little personal experiences and, and like seeing the whole world through those lenses. But, I'm, but I often, do you know Enneagram? I'm in Enneagram 6. So I don't know if you know, it's like a personality type deal. Anyway, sixes uh, are very loyal uh, to systems, and we're very loyal to, um, and that kind of stuff. But uh, but, I, but we, we doubt a lot, and we play devil's advocate a lot. So I'm like, maybe I'm wrong. Let me just let me just ask this black guy over here who I don't know. Hey, Mr. Black Guy, could you tell me what you think about this? And he'll just say the same thing I'm thinking. And I'll be like, wow. So I was in Hinesville, Georgia, and uh, and I was talking with a friend, and uh, and this is I didn't lead her to say this. Well, we were talking about a mutual friend who, who uh, has an organization and, and that leaders were white. And she said, yeah, I love them, but white folks always want to tell people what to do. They think they have all the answers. Uh, and so just because of the history of our country, um, there's, there's this feeling that, like, do white Americans actually value my thoughts and my brain? Or, are they, or are, do they have an agenda that they're masking for the time being? And then when all is said and done, they're really going to take control. I was told, before being hired by the Mission Society, I was told by a mentor, the reason they're hiring you is because they want to get into the black community. And once they do that, they're going to fire you. So there's a lot of suspicion. And the way to overcome suspicion is by friendship and by, um, by a lot of listening. Um, and then also just by... Um, you know, just taking time to learn. We're very quick to do these things in cross-cultural context. We go over to another language. We learn, you know, we learn the culture. We learn the language. But in America, we have this assumption that we're all the same because we're American. But we're very, very different. Very, very different. Um, so I, there, there's, there's a great um, PBS documentary that I enjoyed watching. It's, it's uh, called The African Americans. Colon, many rivers to cross. The African Americans, colon, many rivers to cross. And it's a six part series on what the African American journey has looked like in America. So when you see people being promised, yeah, slavery was wrong, we know it was wrong. And Lincoln says, you get reparations. Then the very next president comes along and says, no reparations. You're like, wait a second. You can't do that. Then people say, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll work hard. So you have Greenwood in Tulsa build up their own community. It's a strong community. It's destroyed by white Americans. They, didn't, they weren't given, you know, shown justice, I mean, or punished. Community never recovered. Uh, and there's so many stories like that. And so just fast forward, you didn't ask me this, but when you look at Ferguson, let's say that Michael Brown did hit the officer or was a threat to the officer. Let's just, let's just give the officer the benefit of the doubt, okay? Still, his body lay in the street for multiple hours. And he was not allowed medical care from people in the community who even said they knew medical procedures. The officer got to leave the scene of the crime, wash his hands. His gun was not checked. Um, he was not interviewed, a full interview and debriefing at the scene of the crime. So when all those things happen, and then you see the way the media you know, took an angle on it, you kind of say, wait a second, that feels really familiar. That feels like something that's not right. Or Tamir Rice, I mean, a kid who, when the 911 call was made, he was just a kid with a gun waving in the air. It's probably fake. Officers didn't get that information, but they pull up. Three seconds later, he's dead on the ground because the officer got out, didn't ask questions, boom, boom, boom. So um, anyway, so that video series, in my opinion, kind of takes you in to the mindset of why, why do you have historically black colleges and universities? Why do you have BET and Jet Magazine and Ebony? 
and I think it's helpful. So, I, so in, in summary, the same amount of energy you would put into going to a country like these guys are in, put that same amount of energy in understanding the culture of African Americans, um, which is going to vary. Because I got teased. I mean, I got called white boy growing up. I got called yellow, red, all those other kinds of things. So even within black community there, human nature divides as in any way it can. Uh, but okay, that's a tangent. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a question as much as an observation following the point you said. I think um, in order for partnerships and relationships to work, what we found in terms of the reconciliation things we've tried to do is that in order to avoid that, white people have all the answers they were always wanting to tell. Well, we found that it's necessary to really, if there's a partnership between a black pastor and a, and a white pastor, the black pastor takes the lead. Uh -huh. if, if that doesn't happen, you're going to have limited involvement from, from the black community. It's like, oh, there's another white guy and he's got a black pastor who's sort of just doing his bidding. And, and so we, we found that, that it has to be reversed in, in terms of promoting that leadership. And then you take the second chair and, and undergird and support from, from that yeah. perspective. The same thing with relationships. You, you've just got to continue to put the other table fellowship things. You, you've got to get your feet under each other's tables, be each other's homes. And, mm -hmm. and, and the other, the third thing, and that's just the last observation, mm -hmm. it, um, white people kind of come in and out of this issue. Um, they'll go to a conference or they'll sit at an event like this and then, man, they're on to racial issues for you know, three weeks to six months to maybe a year and then they're back out of it. Uh, and so what we found was that the longevity, you're in it for the long haul. There's, this is not a, a one-and-done issue, but you, you've got to have long-term total impact relationships that, that really seal uh, that friendship and that fellowship between churches and pastors. So uh, sorry that was not a question, yeah. just a no, I appreciate preaching that. stuff. So Yeah, and I have three really quick responses to that. Um, uh, I have a friend um, who um, is Japanese-American, and we were at a at a missions conference, so people, missionaries should know better. And this this white exhibitor talks to her and says, "I love watching your mouth while you move, uh, watching your mouth move while you talk. You speak English so well." And uh, and and I had to experience that because it's very easy for me as an African American to think that what I've experienced is the worst form of racism or whatever. But as I've entered into other people's spaces, I have a friend, uh, Tom Lynn, who's over University or over Urbana. And I said, Tom, at least Asians don't have like negative stereotypes. I mean, like black people were like, you know, all we can do is play sports and all, you know, all we do is hip hop or whatever. You know, but at least Asians, you know, there's like computer stuff and you can kick our butts, martial arts. And uh, I was like, those are the stereotypes, right? And, and we were, you know, it was in the context of friendship. And he said, yeah, but at least people don't look at you and wonder if you belong here. And I never thought about that. I, I never thought that when a person sees my face, they don't really say, is he American? Was he born here? They don't, they don't do that. But for him, that's his everyday reality. Then, talk to a Mexican guy, Mexican-American. And he said, I told him this story. He says, but at least people see you. I was like, wow, I never thought about that. Like, Mexicans and Latinos sometimes have become like scenery people. They're just there doing a job, but they're not really people to be engaged. So, um, so I've had to practice what I preach, especially what you've talked about. The other thing I'll say, um, two more things real fast. 
we have to protect each other. Um, I was walking through my office, and I'm being vulnerable. I, I love the people I work with, but someone was telling a joke that was a racial joke, and I don't know what race it was or what ethnicity it was, but I heard someone say, as I darted through the kitchen, like before I even entered the room, you probably shouldn't tell that joke. Richard wouldn't like that. I'm like, so you couldn't like protect the, you know, it's like, why does the minority have to be there to defend things? And so I encourage you to speak up if people start talking bad or um, because it's it's burdensome to have to always be the, the spokesperson for things ethnic or, or racial. And the last thing I'll say is SIM, Sudan Interior Mission, formerly uh, then serving in mission, now just SIM. Um, they're based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they had a policy on the books that would not allow blacks to serve with them. It was like, it's historical fact. And Steve Strauss, who served in, uh, in Africa, was aware of this policy when he became pre president and said, um, never again. He's like, uh, he's like, even though it wasn't existing at the time, and even though he wasn't president at the time, he said, I need to make this right. So he washed the feet of three African-American men at a missions conference, you know, modeling that reconciliation. And SIM has more African-Americans on staff than any sending agency that I know of. And their numbers are not dramatic, dramatically high, but they're higher than other organizations in terms of African-Americans in general. So, yeah. Uh -huh. And I think it's so cool to have like IMB missionaries here. Like I want to be like you guys when I grow up one day. So. Richard, I got a question for you right quick. Um, I really appreciate the stuff that you said concerning multiculturalism in, in local church settings. In regards to churches wanting to do local church planting, uh -huh. how does that affect those efforts? So let's take a city like Raleigh here. Raleigh's got all kinds of different people groups, all kinds of different ethnic enclaves, different groups, social circles, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, if a church is monocultural, and it's okay to be monocultural, but it's wanting to reach out to its community. Is it possible for those churches to do effective church planning across those barriers? And have you got any suggestions about what that would look like? Yeah, um, you know, and, and again, I think there's some principles that we borrow from, like, uh, if we're going to reach an unreached people group, uh, you know, we realize that, uh, that the Hutus and the Tutsis might not like each other. So even though they're in the same physical space, they might, you know, you might have church planning initiatives that don't work in the other community. So I would say um, focus on a group of people. Um, one of the challenges with this whole talk, because I'm because I'm critiquing myself, and I'm like, but also socioeconomic issues actually play big factors as well. Then you also have like, uh, they're just there are other there are other diversity things, not just ethnicity. This was mostly focused on ethnicity, but there are other issues that make church feel just as awkward. I mean, um, you know, I, mean, I don't have to fill in the blanks, but you know what I'm saying? Um, I would say focus on a group of people, um, and then if you're wanting to, to, to church plant, you have to ask yourself, at what point are we going to hand over power to that person? Because what I've seen, a lot of organizations that mean well, especially folks that are in the inner city, they, they have all this ministry, and they're like, you know, but you don't ever see a leader raised up to take over. Like, you never do. Well, one reason because that leader, that young leader from the inner city, can't raise ninety thousand dollars a year, you know, to work in your your nonprofit organization just like you can. Um, but I would say, uh, yeah, working with that person and, and dreaming with them, and and not not telling them what to think, but saying, um, you know, what would it look like for for what would a church look like 
in the year 2015, knowing the context of what you've just told me, and then let them kind of dream it, and then say, well, um, I have a little bit of skill in that area, and uh, and I want you to take the lead in this, but would you allow me to, you know, play a role in... So it, it's just, you know what I mean? It's like the whole coming alongside. I mean, they've done this, they just did a survey. Um, I forgot the lady's name, but she did a, her doctoral dissertation on um, on what are the appropriate roles of Westerners in missions, and uh, and that was like the number one role. It's like people to come alongside, not people to do. So I don't know if that answers it. Some of that super, yeah. But um, so yeah. But it's these things are tricky. I'm glad I just get to think about them. And I don't have to do them. <laughs> I'm sure I will one day. <laughs> Anything else? Um, very thought-provoking. Uh, so I, I struggle with the, the, the statement, it's okay to be monocultural, and that's just me. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like Paul was telling the church not to be and spent a lot of time in his letters trying to figure out how Jews and Gentiles can even eat together. Right. I mean a lot. Just on just on how you can figure out when you sit down at the table together how you eat. So am I wrong in thinking he was wanting the church to break down those barriers in the same local church? Not a yeah. huge church, just a you know, handful right. of folks in a house church. Uh -huh. And if so, how does it help us think through this in terms of church culture maybe being part of the answer to the racial tension. Yeah, good question. And this, um, as I said, I'm a devil's advocate even for myself. And so as I was writing this, I was like, well, doesn't Paul talk about this? And uh, But then I thought of like, uh, you know, the final, you know, the Revelation 7-9 scene. And it says people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and they're worshiping God and they're, you know, together. So that means some buru are like this. <clears throat> They're not going, Hosanna, Hosanna. So, um, so, so I think that many times the cities that, that Paul spoke to were like metropolitan cities. They were like, they were like melting pots. You know, they were, they were trade cities. There was already a lot of diversity there. Um, some of them also had the commonality of being Jews. The Gentiles, you know, they, they kind of came in. And so... Um, I think that that probably would have been an example of an exception and not a norm. I can't prove it, but I did try to think through that and to, and to do justice to it. But I do think, um, you know, the issue is in Islam as well. You talk to uh, people from Iran, and there's this rub that in order to approach God, they can't approach him in Farsi. They've got to speak to him in Arabic. You know, there's that rub there, like, like I have to adjust to approach God. So, 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 to, so to answer your question, I think one of the most beautiful things that happens is, is again, what Urbana does, what InterVarsity does through Urbana. Because what they do is they say, this requires big people, like grown-ups, like mature Christians, where, we, where it's not like uh, you sing your song and then I sing my song and we each, you know, that kind of thing. But where we, we go through the process of learning about one another. Why is your music like that? Why is it slow? Why is it fast? Why do you dance? Why do you wail? Why do you and, and you begin to understand it and then as you form deep relationships, you learn how to worship God in that same way. Not as I said earlier, as show and tell. Um, I think that would be the dream. 
that would be the dream. Um, but I do think that that culture is so strong that uh, that's something that we aspire to. But yeah, I sound pessimistic. I really do. But um, and that's why I think that it's okay to be in those churches, provided that you interact. I still think it allows you to have some safe space for that interaction, and then you kind of see what comes out of that. But is that fair to say Paul was speaking of pretty large cities with like lots of people, trade ports, people moving in and out, and uh, there was already diversity there, so they were already interacting with Phrygians and yeah. And there was an overarching culture, the Roman, you know, Romans had come in and taken over. So they were kind of forced into a paradigm of interacting. Uh, these are all, I mean, he's a New Testament guy, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I have become somewhat of a, not a pessimist, but I just, I, I think, it's not a pessimist. I, I, think, I think it is a healthy, I think it is okay. I think it is okay as long as we force that interaction. But the leaders of the church, you guys have to do that. Um, I think of Lifeway. I think somebody was, represents Lifeway. Are you part of Lifeway or someone? Um, you know, like Lifeway has a Sunday school curriculum that my church uses, and it's called You, like Y-O-U. And all the pictures are of African Americans. There's a picture of an African American guy on his knees at his bedside with his young black son next to him modeling his father in prayer. And so when I, when I see that, I'm like, yes, I love this. This is wonderful because all the illustrations are painting positive images of people that look like me. Uh, in the past, everything that's positive has been white. Jesus is white, and, you know, they've done, like, studies, you know, where they have kids, you know, hold two Barbie dolls. Which one's ugly? They hold up the black one. Which one's beautiful? They hold up the white one. Which one's smart? They hold up the white one. Which one's dumb? They hold up the black one. So, you know, people have been conditioned to, to see African-American things as ugly. And so Lifeway, putting African-Americans in a positive light has been huge. Um, one thing I would encourage them to do is to still mix in pictures and images of other cultures because that gives exposure to, to diversity. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, could you talk more about, you, you've done this, um, uh, some of the dynamics of the exceptions, some churches that are that are truly multicultural. We have a I told you earlier that we have a congregation that's <clears throat> Korean and an Arabic fellowship also. We are actually are trying to walk together, but like you say, culture is really strong. Even if you want to do that, some of those pieces are, you know, and I'm a missionary kid too, so you're kind of conscious of these things. But when you think of some of the churches that you describe as the exception, what are some dynamics there, whether it be leadership, um, is one culture at the end of the day dominant, uh, yeah. things like that? Yeah, yeah. Um I know that uh, who is it? Brian Loritz. You know Brian Loritz. I think he's he's done. He he would probably disagree with me. I think I don't know, but I know he's really been pushing toward multicultural churches. And I'd love to. I would love to be like shown another way. Like if 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 I'm wrong, I'm 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 open. I'm not I'm not disagreeing. But I think that what they share is that sometimes you have guys who went to seminary together, and they like they cried together and flunked together and passed together and. They like you know stayed up together and they formed genuine brotherhoods or or, or, or relationships or sisterhoods I guess you can say um, and and they and they formed genuine relationships where they where they actually like each other and then out of that closeness and relationship they try to form a church that's what I think I've seen and uh, and so you'll see people reaching out to their friends who are in seminary with them and say hey man would you be my youth director would you be my worship leader because they know that these people might get it already. And as that leadership models 
what it looks like to truly be intercultural, then I think the rest of the congregation catches on. I mean, a good example would be, um, I have a friend named Cody Lawrence, and uh, Cody is uh, with the, with the uh, he's with the, I think he's with NAM, but he's based out of uh, Illinois area, and he works out, you know Cody? Great guy, and uh, so Cody has never been to the south side of Chicago, um, and that's where my, my family is from. So we went to visit my aunt, and uh, it was so it was wonderful because you know like like being a black person who goes into a majority white setting, you you're aware of all the like assimilation that you have to do, and and you're aware of like sometimes the feelings of awkwardness, but you get used to it. You know you're like I've done this before, but for him it was so fascinating because my uncle Joe is like using like racial like racially charged words you know not talking about white people necessarily but just like other ethnicities you just you know you don't have to don't try to think of what I'm trying to say <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so it's almost like a sitcom because Cody's sitting next to me and we're and, and my, 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 grand, my aunt's like you want some Simon Croquettes and he's like I don't know what a Simon Croquette is you know you know like little salmon patties and <coughs> And uh, and they're talking about things that are that are like unique to unique to African American life, and and it was like for him it was like brand new, he had never seen it before, uh, and so what happens when you eat people's food and you hang out with them and you form friendships, then you value their their perspective and their way of living. So I would say one thing you can do. <coughs> is to showcase one another's talents. I mean, not talents, but their cultures. So, uh, inter, uh, InterVarsity does this well. Uh, in Urbana, at Urbana 2012, Sandra Van Opstel led worship. And one thing she thought would be fun to do is to highlight the cultures of various band members by showing the food that they eat at home. So it's like, hey, my name is so-and-so, and at my house we eat pupusas and black beans and rice. And it's like a picture of his mom's kitchen with, uh, with like, you know, he's like smelling the soup and everything. And, and so it, it brings culture alive. It makes it tasteable. It makes it tangible, if you will. And as we enter into those spaces, it gives us appreciation for difference, if that makes any sense. So I think that's one thing you can do well. <coughs> is to showcase people's cultures without making it uh, like here's something odd and different. You know? It's like here's something legitimate. God made these people this way and what would it look like for us to enter into that experience? So, yeah. But check out the Urbana video. I, like I said, I'm a junkie. I mean, I'm just... They, they did like a Ghanaian song. and a, So, any other questions? And <laughs> Yeah, um... Thank, thanks so much for taking our questions. I, I don't want to make this uber theological, but uh, kind of return back to the previous question about uh, uh, Paul. About yeah, about Paul and the New Testament. Where does your so the statement that you made about it's okay for for churches to to be monocultural? Um, where does a person's understanding of the already aspect of the kingdom play into that. Mm -hmm. So obviously you you know quoted Revelation seven nine. We look at Revelation five nine seven nine. We see a picture of the inaugurated kingdom, Christ on his throne, people groups from from all types of ethnicities and right. cultures, you know, worshiping the Lamb. But obviously there's an aspect in which that the church now is a picture, an embassy, we would say, an outpost of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. 
So if, if that's the kingdom to come, that's what it's going to look like, then not just taking to, to chapter and verse of, you know, let's replicate Paul, uh-huh. but just an overwhelming or an, an, an overarching eschatology of the scripture pointing to the, the coming kingdom and the already aspect of that. Right. How does that play into to your thinking? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure that you've thought on this quite a bit. So Yeah, and... and um and that's why I kind of call them baby steps because we're working toward that. I mean, we we, we really want that. Um, when when I when I work with this team of folks from Lausanne, so the way Lausanne works, we have there are 12 regions, and each region has an international deputy director, and so the IDD appoints a younger leader for every region, and so I represent North America, but I'm there with Sarah, who's Brazilian, Hanny, who's Egyptian, and, and et cetera, et cetera. When when we all get together. Um, because we have like language barriers, they're forced to worship in English. They're, we're forced to have all of our meetings in English. So um, my teacher used to say that speaking through another language is like kissing your girlfriend through a Kleenex. You know, I mean, like, it, like it's something's there, but it's just not the real thing. And so, um, so it's almost like, <laughs> well, sorry, be, because because we live in on this side of heaven. There are just certain realities that um, it's really hard to have a, a completely equal worship experience where, where everybody feels like their deepest heartfelt expressions are going to be honored and showcased, if you will. Um, and we can make adjustments as a team, our, our Lausanne group. We can worship together, but we're going to have to sing like, you know, oceans or, you know, like, you know, and it's okay. Because we're all willing to make that that leap into to worship together, because we know that's the only place we have in common. But after a period of time, it becomes very uncomfortable because you're just like, "But English is not my language," and and I I really want to talk to God and say, "Buenas a you know, "Gloire I really want to say that, but I can't in this context because because it doesn't allow for it. So. Yes, I think that that is what we're working toward, um, and I think we have to have real discussions about it. Um, but I just think that this side of heaven, it's just really challenging. Adam just messed it up, you know. I don't know if that answers it, but because you got language barriers and, and you see it, but like generational stuff, you know. Um, well, we all see it with generational stuff. That music is too loud. Slow it down. <laughs> Earplugs coming to worship. So. Uh, yeah, baby steps. So, so it's again. Just, I, I think you heard what I said. It's okay to be monocultural, but you have to force your church to interact with diversity, um, and that breaks down some of those barriers. If if people meet each other and they say, "Wow, you like to do woodworking? I like to do woodworking," and then you form smaller friendships, and people start hanging out together, and they see the legitimacy of one another's styles of living, and that breaks down some of those barriers, and that works us toward that picture of what Jesus desires at the end when all is said and done. So, 